welcome back to the Folk Podcast. We have a pretty awesome guest for you today. I've been really excited to finally get this going. We've been trying for the last few months. Uh, I have Tom Rousel from uh, Survive the Jive here with us today, and hopefully we can have a pretty pretty in-depth conversation about all things paganism. There's a lot of things to talk about because he has been doing this for almost 12 years. Uh, I think his YouTube, his earliest video is 11 years ago. So, uh, Tom, I just want to hand it off to you. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, can you give anyone like a, a just a brief introduction into who you are and what you do? Hi, Jacob. Thanks for that introduction. Yeah, um, it's good to be on your podcast. Uh, my channel is even older than 12 years. Some of the older videos, I took them down. So, I mean, my most popular video ever was in 2007. I still haven't beaten that one. And that got nearly a million views. And um, nowadays, my I'm happy if a video gets half a million views. But I, So I started off pretty well. But then um, I, I faded into obscurity for some of the intervening years. But uh, the pagan content didn't start until around uh, 12 years ago. So as a, in, in context of a pagan YouTuber, about 12 years. But yeah, the channel itself was created in 2006 when, when YouTube first was launched. I was so about I'm to say, the, like, I, I'm looking at it right now. It says April 16th, 2006. I was like, wait, is that the year that YouTube started? <laughs> yeah, it is. I was already looking for, I already had some videos made before YouTube was uploaded, was made because I had uh, did a degree in video production and, and media in general. And uh, I had no, there were those days, no video hosting websites for free. So video, I mean, bandwidth was more expensive and not everyone even used broadband. So you, you only uploaded like three or four minute videos. And um, it, when YouTube came, it was like, I've been waiting for something like that to happen. Um, uh, and I was really happy when it did. And um, I'd been, I was also in, introduced into the YouTube partner program right when it started in uh, the beginning. So I think it was this early video of mine um which was about mushrooms actually that uh that, oh, wow. that got nearly a million views and i um and i got to partner program for that and i had a couple of other videos travel videos in venezuela and in Qatar from that did pretty well to start with and uh, but then i branched off into paganism as i sort of became a pagan around 2009 and um then in uh when i went to back to university to study medieval history to learn more about paganism because i thought by that time as many heathens will know it becomes it's a religion that's almost like um, being a you know there's a lot of book learning involved you've got to be a, a bit of a scholar to to get into some of it so um i decided to if i was this is my faith so i need to really take it seriously and go back to university and uh did a master's in medieval history focusing on icelandic and uh, old english literature and um then that that all spilled out into the channel and uh it it, it wasn't actually i never wanted to be a youtuber uh, i only did this stuff on the side to like showcase my video videos and i even then even after i did that i, I went and made a feature-length film after my degree about anglo-saxon paganism called from runes to ruins and uh, that was never supposed to go on the channel it was always meant to be for broadcast and originally i was in talks at the bbc offices for it to be something to that. I've had many interviews with History Channel over the years where they've ummed and ahed about putting me on. And, but in the end, um, I just put on hit bits and bobs here and there on YouTube and it just took off. And I became one of the early heathens, heathen YouTubers. There weren't very many to compete with me uh, to start with. But um, I have been in conversation with since 2012, at least, 
uh, more experience in older heathens from people who were, you know, the original OGs in the British heathenism scene in the 80s. So I haven't just been, uh, you know, a young blood, you know, trailblazing ahead and not listening to the elders. Um, but since since those dark times, a lot of time years have passed, and now I'm soon to be an elder myself. <laughs> I'm not uh, not the young buck I used to be, but uh, um, yeah, uh, a, a pagan, heathenism is a much more popular topic now than it used to be. Oh yeah, well, well, one of the things that uh, you know, just going through your catalog of videos, a lot of what you were doing earlier on. Um, you know, especially, uh, you know, establishing the traveling and showing pagan places and stuff like that across the world. Uh, that's something that I'm finally starting to be able to get into. I mean, I started my YouTube channel basically right before COVID happened. Uh, and so that kind of stopped all of that. You know, I had this big plan that as soon as I started my Patreon, I was going to start traveling and interviewing people from around the world. And I'm finally being able, I'm able to do that now. Uh, you know, we actually are having uh, two pagan gatherings ourselves in the Netherlands and the UK coming up. Uh, oh, fantastic. And, yeah, and it's our first international one. So I'll be going to those and helping get those established. Uh, so it, it's been a very humbling experience to finally be able to travel and talk to, you know, all the people. I mean, we have some people even in our Discord, like uh, like Niels, who I know listens to the podcast. You know, he's from Sweden and has been doing this like 30 years or something like that. Or it's, I'm, I'm probably getting that wrong, but he's a really cool guy and really knowledgeable. And I've loved getting to talk to the OGs, as you say. Um, that are finally starting to come out of the woodwork and uh, and trust my my young buck self, as you said. Um, yeah. But uh, Caleb, uh, I know you had a question uh, that was pretty pretty spot on to what we're our transitioning here about uh, how he got into paganism. Yeah, so I was watching some of the videos earlier, and uh, I believe it was the the one on the uh, Indo European Sky Father, uh, and the question came to mind of like, how, what drew you uh, into paganism then? I uh, was also curious about what your ritual practice is like, because I don't believe I've ever uh, met a or met or talked to like an English or an Anglo-Saxon pagan before. OK, well, um, uh, I did talk a bit about my own ritual practices in um, a video where I talked about how to pray like a pagan. Um, and basically, uh, and I've mentioned this in a lot of podcasts, because actually I get interviewed most of the podcasts I, and interviews I've done for, are not with paying, not with fellow heathens, and so they're they're very curious about what exactly is a heathen and what what do you actually do. So this is the most common question I answer on 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 interviews. But yeah, it's not probably dissimilar to what you consider. Uh, my how to pray like a pagan video doesn't specify Anglo-Saxon. It's specified all Indo-European pet prayers have a, a format. And I, and I think that all they're pretty much you can see them in Homer's literature and um, you can see them in. Um, well, you can see them sort of in the in Sigdrifamol, it's there and you can see hints of it in other later folkloric Germanic sort of uh, invocations. But it's basically uh, it, it involves um, petitioning a god. You use epithets to uh, to big them up and you, you should refer to them in that way. And the epithets are not chosen by you. They, they refer to the mythic attributes that are known. And you should pick the, um, the epithet according to what, in what way that God is the most relevant God to invoke for the prayer that you're, uh, for the prayer that you're saying. And also the, I, I personally look a lot to, when I don't, besides all the Germanic sources of the little hints here and like the Fienenby amulet and of course all the in the in the sagas and whatever that how a, a Norse prayer should look, I do refer back to 
Indo-European sources like Homer and the Rig Veda for like context, but they're using this format. So once you've invoked them, you have the prayer itself where you ask for what you want them to do. And you might, and then finally you'll offer what you give them in return. So sometimes that's, uh, well, usually that's accompanied by an immediate offering, which would have traditionally, of course, in almost all the religions would be the sacrifice of an animal, but it's often in modern, even in modern and later uh, forms of the religions, like uh, is something else, like some libations of milk, uh, incense or whatever. Alcohol is very common uh, libation. I use alcohol a lot um, as a libation. Uh, and then um, it may also involve a promise like, you know, Odysseus would say, like, if you if you give this to me, then I will then give you a huge sacrifice. So instead of like actually just the sacrifice or in the initial prayer, there can be a promise of giving more in exchange. So there is a kind of transactional nature to it. So in terms of prayer, I generally follow that uh, format. But my daily prayers, I don't offer libations uh, on a daily basis. I don't offer any sacrifice on a daily basis. I usually just light a, uh, light a, a kneel before idols of the gods, um, which are not Anglo-Saxon idols because there aren't none to refer to. They're replicas of Norse idols. Uh, kneel before them and uh, I say a formulaic prayer that I always say and I uh, light a candle or uh, an oil lamp or something. Uh, but then for the larger festivals, we have um, gatherings of, uh, of, uh, of our hearth we we'll come together at sacred places, usually a burial mound, um, but also it can be uh, a venerable tree, you know, an old oak, if it's for Thor, um, uh, Thunor, as we say. Um, and at Yule, we, use, we like to come together inside a building uh, and have a, a rep something resembling King Hawkins feast with the Thrandheimers as related in um, the, Harkon and Maul, the saga of King Harkon the Good, um, where it isn't in a temple, it isn't at a barrow, it isn't in uh, at a sacred tree or a grove, it's in a hall and they have a feast. So we tried to have a feast in a, in a, inside a building. Although during COVID that wasn't possible. So we actually found underground caves and <laughs> went into an underground cave and did that. That was a, an unusual experience because we thought the cave would escape the, the storm, but it was actually a leaky cave. So we were, um, we were dripping water all on our heads and we were about ankle deep in water as well, like swirling all around us in a storm on a moor inside a cave. And then when you lit the fire inside, we managed to get a fire going by like on a stack of rocks so we could keep it out of the water. And then the smoke <laughs> in a cave is obviously uh, another issue. So it was, <laughs> Probably the most difficult blog I've ever done, but uh, yeah, that wouldn't probably won't repeat that. But uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Uh, so Ian, yeah. I'll, I'll, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, um, my bad. But yeah, that, that answers the question. And also um, the performing something like that inside of a, a cave, that actually sounds like it'd be a very good, like uh, ancient ancestral connection. It'd be reaching way back, but sounds yeah. like it'd be interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I think caves are definitely a good place to leave offerings and there's evidence that that sort of thing was done. In I've talked about it in my video about Thor in Britain, where there's like a, a cave which contains not only like Stone Age burials, but also like Celtic and Anglo-Saxon and Viking offerings in the cave. So you can see it was just used over and over through the years, like people leaving weapons in it and stuff. But um, I don't, I doubt there was ever done a Yule block because it seems like Yule had the specific like 
connection with being indoors and you know at the hearth whereas i think caves generally in in many indo-european religions not necessarily germanic because uh, we don't know so much i don't know about any germanic sources of caves uh, as in rituals but generally it's associated with goddess like a, a mother goddess like in the greek context you know you associate it with a with a mother earth or something like that because you're going down it's catonic sort of aspect but there are I, I said in my video there is a cave in in um there's thor's cave which i mentioned in the video about thor and britain and near to it there's another called odin's cave um so that uh, those were both uh, viking rather than anglo-saxon holy sites because of the it would have been called woden's cave otherwise but um so yeah maybe in england the vikings just thought let's go for caves but i don't know if that caves were used in that way in scandinavia so ian i'm going to pass it off to you in just a second but i do want to share with the audience real quick kind of how this podcast came together um and it's kind of a uh, goes with what you just talked about uh, is actually a conversation over Yule and you know historical heathen Yule and whatnot and uh, you had commented on one of my posts or a video and I decided to email you and we went back and forth for a bit and I was like well why don't you just come on the podcast and we'll just like talk <laughs> you know and uh, I, I, I want to share that because I think you and I both have seen uh, you know the heathen world pagan world in general just so much infighting when it comes to nuances and things like that and I, I just really want to call and say, you know, I, I really respect that we were able to have, you know, a respectful conversation that led to this conversation. And that's something I wish I'd see more in, you know, the pagan community at large. Yeah, it's good to, it's good to always recognize that you, I mean, I've been, I, none of the opinions I have now are ones that I've always had. So I'm always trying to learn and be to, and from other people and from myself, from books or from, from advice or whatever. So when I started out, for me, Yule was Christmas, so I just sort of thought of it as like the heathen equivalent to Christmas. And then, then I thought maybe I should be, it seemed more appropriate to move it to a date closer to the solstice. And that's what many people do. But over time, I was convinced of the arguments that um, stem mainly from uh, Andreas Norbert, who is not a, a heathen, as far as I know, but an academic who wrote a, a very convincing argument uh, for why um, Yule was not really centered on the solstice and it wasn't a major thing aspect of it. Uh, the article is called Yule Disting och Furkshirlig Tider Ekning and it is mainly in Swedish, but uh, the entire uh, essay is um, summarized in English. Uh, I think it's about 40 pages in. So if you find it, it's all for free on academia.edu. If you read through the English summary, you get the whole thing anyway. And um, I'm, I speak a bit of Swedish because I lived in Sweden for three years, but I'm not, I couldn't read an academic essay. So I would, didn't blame anyone for not wanting to try and slog through the Swedish. Um, but uh, basically, it's he combines the Anglo-Saxon evidence, which is, you know, the oldest in terms of like written evidence for Germanic paganism with the um, with the uh, other evidence uh, from the, 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 the more, you know, the, the much more to go through evidence from uh, Sweden and Iceland. Um, and yeah, it does seem that really the the first off, we know for a fact that the calendar that we that we have now, which is Roman calendar, didn't exist then because that came later. The Romans even switched that later. 
uh, and besides Gregorian and Julian calendars, they didn't, the, the Germanic people didn't use either of them anyway. So um, they used, uh, a, they were very much, you know, focused on the moon as a way of counting the years, which is what they even say, like the elves call moon uh, tally of the years. Uh, so that is the, they have a solar lunar calendar. There's no doubt the sun is part of the calendar, but lunar solar calendars were are, are also used by the Celts and also by Semitic peoples. Many cultures use them. And it makes sense because the only thing that you've got like really to tell the time by is the sun and the moon. So the days and the, you know, the days go by and, and you can see the sun, the year, you can calculate a year by the sun and you can calculate a month by the moon. So um, hence the word month. So all the stuff about, you know, August and January, uh, these, these, these are just made up words for that don't uh, like, um, and the date numbering of the days within the months are not uh, are somewhat arbitrary and, and culturally specific. But the moon is the moon that it only has the full moon is not different for one culture to the next. It's the full moon. So um, although they did, did, they definitely did become influenced by um, other cultures, forms of time keeping. Uh, and we see that in the Misseri calendar from Iceland. Uh, that's later on in the Viking age. So it does seem at least in late, very late forms of heathenism, there was a kind of synchronized calendar, which acknowledged the solstice and integrated into their uh, timekeeping. And it's possible that the solstice was always um, a part of their um, calendar, but it's not necessary, necessarily true that they had the exact solstice on the exact solstice because the the shortest day what they call the shortest day would be calculated not by like with you know with a telescope or any like astronomical observations it would literally just be counting the hours of the day so that might not actually fall on what the true solstice was necessarily anyway but they the um the point of the of the essay is that the yule is in the anglo-saxon and the norse sources is said to be two months long and those months are generally always agreed to be December and January. And the main argument is that the actual big Yule feast, the big, the one, the main Yule feast of this holy, of this holy period of two months was actually towards the full moon of the second of the months. Um, so the, the first month in Norse was called Ullur and the second was called Yul Manuth. And um, in, I think in English, they're both called the same they're both called Yeola Monoth, meaning Yule month so uh yeah that's what I try and do that's what some heathens nowadays try to do we we just have it this year it fell on 17th January and so we practice it then no disrespect to people who want to do it on the solstice there's all kinds of reasons why that might be more convenient or it might synchronize better with your with your your you know Christmas holidays that your job actually allows you to have and um it, it, what your family are doing so i don't have any beef with people who who don't who use it do it the same way i used to do it on the solstice but i do uh, want to stress that i don't think that's how you actually was celebrated in pagan times personally so ian to pass it off to you and i know you got a question down there yeah so mine's mine's more of a towards the logistical side of like when you do your videos and the amount of research so the one that really made me think of this was your 
video that you did uh, discussing the different not works, whether, you know, what's Celtic, Norse, Anglo-Saxon, and then in that video, you know, you went all the way into saying it was all uh, most likely inspired by the Roman, I believe it was Roman vine work. Um, mm. So as far as like the time-wise, like how much, how much research and, and uh, you know, just digging into that kind of stuff do you do before doing videos like that? Because I mean, that was, there was a lot of detail in that and just, you know, dissecting each one, um, you know, kind of where it came from and where it was inspired by it and, you know, things like that. Okay, that's an interesting question. Nobody asked me that before, the sort of thing. Um, Good job, Ian. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's basically, I, I don't actually, I kind of, to some extent, sort of follow fate with what video I'm going to do. I don't have a clear plan for the direction and with some, with some exceptions where I've deliberately chosen a topic because I want to get more views and I know that I can, like the cannabis video, I just thought, I know I can get a lot of video, views if I do a video about cannabis. But it, even then, I, it, I'd happen to stumble upon lots of research and people offered to help me with research for that one. So, it, but for most of them, it's more like I kind of follow fate and I feel like that, that's the video that has to be made at this moment because of the, these events have happened. So with the, the video you talked about, that my most recent one, I had collected over the past year from the local area footage of um, you know, Anglo-Saxon crosses and fonts. And then when I was in Scotland, I got lots of nice stonework. And then another trip earlier in, the, earlier in that year, I'd picked up all this um, footage from Penrith. And I just thought over the years, I collected like lots of footage of the medieval stone artwork of the Anglo-Saxons and Celts of British art, the British stone artwork of medieval, early medieval Britain. And, um, and I thought this all needs to go in some video. I've got, <laughs> I don't know what to do with it all. And I, 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 and I always got annoyed by how people at these places told me it was Celtic when I didn't, and I argue this in the video, I don't want to go into too much detail here. I don't always feel comfortable with using that term for these monuments because it, it's often they, the people who made them spoke English and the artwork, even when it's influenced by Celtic people or created by Celtic people can also be said to have originated in Scandinavia uh, in, the, in the form that it's found in the British Isles. Uh, so, and I learned that at university um, and to my surprise, that my um, my uh, one of my lecturers, who was not an archaeologist but rather a uh, a philologist, who told me that Salin Stahl was the origin of the so-called Celtic network. And when I looked into it, um, I found that archaeologists agreed with him. But what I found funny is that people don't know that, and um, uh, people will often say, you know, like the Germanic art originates from Scythian or uh, or but and others will say it comes from Roman, and some will say it's a mixture of the Roman and the Scythian. And I think there's some clear, there's some clear parallels with those two that would make that clear. Uh, and I mean, most Ro Germanic art, early Germanic art is, um, I mean, not talking about the stuff from like the, the you know, 2000 years ago, but uh, after about, uh, after the fall of the Roman empire, you can see Germanic art around and clothing is very, very, very much based on late Roman clothing, like the, the typically Germanic helmets are late Roman cavalry helmets, but added with knotwork. 
and uh, that the buckles are the same ones that late Roman uh, soldiers were wearing. But most people don't know what a late Roman soldier looked like. So they associate Roman military wear with something much older. But if you look at what late Roman, you know, towards the fall of the Roman Empire, what they look like around in the areas around Germany, you'll see, oh, right, that's exactly like what, you know, a typical Vendelier or warrior in Sweden looked like, except for there's this beautiful, detailed knotwork all over everything on the, and that's something that they invented around that time. And it isn't, it might come from, the knotwork it might come from something in Rome, but it isn't, it isn't in Rome. Whatever, you don't see that in Rome and the way it's applied to everything, like from every belt buckle to whatever. And it, in that time at the fall of the Roman Empire, it doesn't exist in Britain or Ireland. So it definitely comes from continental or Scandinavian Germanic people and is brought into uh, the British Isles by them. Anyway, I thought I'll get to use all this cool footage and I'll get to explain this thing that most people don't seem to know and is a little bit controversial because um, over the 19th century, like in the British Isles, these what we call knotwork, we call it Celtic knotwork generally, colloquially, because it's so tied up with a common Celtic identity. And the, part of the reason for that is that uh, the the, all these different like Celtic speaking parts of the British Isles, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, they all use these kinds of knotwork in their local art. So they can say that joins them all together. But the problem is that also so did the Vikings and so did the Anglo-Saxons. So it joins them together, but it doesn't exclude the Germanic neighbors. And the reason for that they all have is because it was, it was pop, it just became like, it stopped being associated with exclusively Germanic people. It just became a, uh, the artwork of the islands, like everyone used it. And it varies in different places and you get uniquely Celtic variants. So you can, you can call it Celtic and, it, and that makes sense. But um, it, 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 it just, uh, it doesn't come from the, you know, the people, the Celtic speakers of the British Isles before the Romans didn't have anything like that. Uh, and they didn't, and even under Roman rule, there was nothing like that. So I don't, I don't like it to be, I think people assume that there was. And so that's why I was trying to debunk, uh, of, uh, but yeah. Uh, I, I, so in a way I, I just I didn't, when I was collecting these footage as well, I didn't have a plan for what video exactly it was gonna be. I just knew that I was near to something and I will film it and then see what happens. And sometimes like uh, there's some really like uh, extraordinary uh, chance of fate that things happen when I'm doing it. Like I was in my former employment with the World Health Organization, I was sent to deliver a talk in India and it just so happened to be not that far from the house where my great, great grandfather's daughter lived. And I went there and he, I knew he had died in that house. And then from there, I, uh, it was a hotel so I could stay in it. And then I filmed about, and then I made a little film and it turned out someone to show me where my great, great grandfather's grave was in India. And it's not in the part of India that, you know, you'd easily get to when traveling. It was a long way from any airport, a long way from any tourist trail. Um, so it was something that only happened because of the chance fate that my job sent me there. I would never have paid all that uh, all to go all the way there to make a video. And um, it's many of the videos that people that are made are, 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 are on that basis. Like I didn't 100% plan them. It just sort of fell into place and I just go with whatever whatever the cards weird deals me well, that's crazy because i actually had something similar uh i was able to spend the summer in bavaria and germany last year 
And I came upon uh, came upon this legend of the three Bethans or the three Beatons, or which are three mother goddesses of southern Germany. And I ended up following this trail to the point I was going to these old churches that still had uh, iconography where they were sainted um, after uh, Catholicism moved in. And it even led me to a burial mound of a Celtic priestess next to a healing spring called the Three Sisters Healing Well or something like that. And uh, which actually it was uh, led me to one of the videos you made, uh, which was talking about healing wells in England, uh, where you talked about clouties uh, and like the hanging ribbons, which were actually at that same place. So uh, that was it was a crazy wow. experience. I have all this footage and I don't know what to do with it yet. Yeah, I think sometimes you 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 sit on it for a while and think about what kind of video to do with it. And then it suddenly becomes clear exactly what you need to do. Um, but other times you just got to kind of I did used to shoehorn things in, but I, I, I don't do that so much now. Like my Roman, uh, I think my Roman Britain video, I had this like cool Etruscan chariot footage from when I went to the museum in New York. I just thought, I'll just stick it at the front of it. <laughs> I don't know yeah. where to, else to put it. And I won't do another video on anything Roman for a while. So I'll just put it here. But uh, if you've got, because I collect my own footage, I like to use it if I can. Um, but uh, more and more YouTubers now, can, you can get, and you didn't used to be able to when I started, but you can get good quality of stock footage for free or cheap. So a lot of people now are, don't have to have all camera equipment and whatever and travel out to places. They can make quite good films without having to bother with all that. Yeah, I, I, I've done it briefly for some videos. In particular, uh, I've not managed to make it to Norway uh, or the fjords of anywhere. And so I'll use that sometimes if I'm talking specifically about like, you know, Norway, uh, just to have some B-roll. But I feel dirty, honestly, because I, I really enjoy the art of filmmaking. And uh, and after anytime I like download something from a website, I'm like, this feels wrong. I think I, I, I know what you mean. I used to be a little bit too um, uh, purist in that respect. But since like I don't have that great camera equipment and, uh, and now I can get like much more high quality footage than what I film then um, I, I and I do want to improve over my overall goal is to make the viewing experience uh, you know uh, to improve the viewing experience so it's more educational more informative and more enjoyable so um, in some cases and I just need a more beautiful shot than that then someone else is going to give it to me for free or cheap then that's great but sometimes there's something really obscure that you're never going to find in stock footage so you just need to go and find uh, the museum that it's in or the place and just go there and shoot it um, and I think that hopefully adds something for the viewer experience especially since we got to compete with uh you know tiktok attention spans nowadays uh you know you make pretty long form videos and uh i mean i like to keep videos around 20 minutes but i mean shoot people only have 60 seconds nowadays to keep their attention it's funny actually i used to all my videos to started were always five minutes and that was like the sweet spot i'd always aim for five minutes and in those days it took ages to upload anything anyway so five minute video could take hours to upload so it was uh partly like you know restrictions on equipment and, and the internet but um at some point around 2016 uh, the habits of the average youtube viewer change significantly and people do really want longer videos uh at least to about an hour suddenly became um, much better and also youtube cottoned onto this at some point and started to reward you not based on views but on hours watched yeah. So in that context, it was it made more sense for me to make longer videos because actually I do. I mean, there are a certain amount of people who are like they'll you know you'll they'll drop off at the start and you'll lose those viewers. But 
it, you'll still get more hours watched just from the the, uh, the other people watching all the way through to a, a long video than if you had a shorter video where you retain high viewing figures uh, because um, uh, yeah because of the way that algorithm currently works. But that that could change if if YouTube suddenly decides to to follow TikTok's example. Yeah, well, that, that's has me worried with the YouTube shorts is that they're going to do that. Uh, but I mean, we should start judging age of YouTubers based on uh, how many algorithm changes you've been through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll start, start betraying my age by talking about these things. Uh, <laughs> I won't tell you how old I was when you started YouTube. Uh, anyways, uh, Ian, Caleb, uh, any other questions you guys have at the moment uh, off the top of your head? Uh, yeah, I've got one. Um, the another video that I watched of yours uh, that I had actually looked into the, uh, the actual figure itself that I hadn't found as much information as you delivered in the video was the, uh, the horn Viking spear dancer, the, uh, the, the image of Odin or one of his, one of the, uh, a dancer, you know, taking on his former image in the, uh, in a ritual. I was curious like where you, uh, you found and tied together all the, uh, the information from. Oh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm really proud of that video because I, I feel like it's a, a kind of thing that a lot of people are aware of uh, sort of peripherally, but that they haven't, they're not, they didn't know about how many there are examples of that in the archaeological record. And um, the, and I just thought this deserves to be more widely known because it never gets talked about in any documentaries on television. And it's kind of an obscure thing. Even a lot of historians aren't aware. It's something that uh, archeologists know about and uh, they don't share it enough. And, um, uh, and, and it does have crossover with history as I talked with like the, 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 the quotes that go along with it, like the end with like, uh, where it says, oh, that goth in, that, I can't remember which text it was, is the goth says, uh, uh, Odin guide my, dart you know odin guide my spear so it seems like there was this like idea of odin guiding a spear just as it is depicted in some of those examples i gave but um the without having to explain too much of the video for your viewers who haven't seen it but i talking about this archaeological motif called uh the horned spear dancer which depicts either odin or or, or an avatar of odin with the, uh, with a headdress which uh, has two birds coming out of it that look like horns hence it's called horned but they're definitely birds not horns and um he's sometimes uh in anglo-saxon and viking and pre-viking and scandinavian art depicted dancing with spears but sometimes he's not and and sometimes and this is sometimes considered a different motif it's just the head with the horns and then that's termed by Paul Mortimer, who I, know, I used to know personally, I haven't spoken to him for a long time, but Paul Mortimer, uh, I think, helped get me the idea to, to gather this information in one place. So I, um, uh, he was, he's not a, an archeologist as such, but he is, an, he's a, a living, what they call living historian or living history, where he's part of a group or was part of a group called Wolf Heldness. And so he dresses up, he has like a full costume of Radwald of, of East Anglia, the, the Anglo-Saxon king from Sutton Hoo. And they have, they all have like perfectly accurate Vendel era, Swedish and English uh, helmets and spears and swords. And when I say perfectly accurate, I mean, down to the smallest detail, they spend thousands and thousands of pounds on replicating this kind of stuff. And then they wear it and then from the of wearing it and holding it and dressing in it, they try to learn that they're not like um, reenactors who 
they those are people who dress up to reenact battles and then swing the swords about these people living history people don't do that they just focus on the process of trying to create the sword or whatever item it is in exactly the way it was made originally and in as close as possible to the original item and then wearing it learn like and fill in the gaps because like some things we know about what they wore but then when you actually try and wear it, you feel like you see like, oh, that doesn't work. The sword can't be worn like that. So it would need padding here, or would they have this here? And they, you start to figure things out that you that an archaeologist or a historian wouldn't otherwise know. So it's a really interesting um, practice. And, it, it, and, and as a result, they were they collaborated with archaeologists uh, like Neil Price at the University of Uppsala, who I've met. And um, uh, they, a few of the other guys in Wolf Hairdness used to post very interesting and obscure new finds of these horned men. And I just asked them if I could just collect a few of the, the, the more obscure ones, because some people were still calling it helmet. In some of these images, you can't even tell if it's a, if it, is it a man got horns growing out of his head or is he wearing a helmet? But then if you look at the, some ones from Denmark and I showed them in the video, it's absolutely clear that it's not a helmet they're not growing out of his head. It's a headdress that's strapped to the front of the head. So we know that now, and we can see, and you know, when, and if you didn't know, like the, those archaeological findings are like published in some really obscure journal that no one else will see. So like th this is information that should be widely known, especially for heathens, like not just for academics, but heathens need, want to know this because this is obviously a crucial part of how the Woden or Odin cult worked for hundreds of years because these items are found all through the anglo-saxon pagan era all through the viking era uh, and as far east as russia as well as, as in england so it's um a really you know uh, important thing so everything i did put the sources in the video for the written sources that i'd used but um part part of it was just me collecting images of um the uh matt bunker from uh matt bunker from wolf hairedness was responsible for a lot of the photos that I'd seen and making me aware of a lot of those archaeological finds. And um, also the late Roger Wilkel, who was an archaeologist from Sweden, who I used to know in Sweden. He used to keep me informed of all kinds of finds when they were coming in before he died, sadly. Um, but uh, yeah, th that's your answer. <laughs> Give me Thank you. 10 seconds. Let me grab that ring. I don't know if I'll be able to like show it on the webcam, but I'll be right back. Yeah, thank you for uh, for explaining that. I had there's several things like throughout my time being a pagan the last few years where I've I've found things tried to research them and I ended up hitting a stone wall. And I had uh, mm -hmm. I had something like that happen with the, the a lot of the Bronze Age stuff because I had I had this whole thing where I got stuck trying to look back and trying to trace everything back as far as I could. And I think with your videos, I'll actually be able to find out a lot more than I was previously. Um, but I tried going back to like 10,000 BC and then working my way forward trying to like trace everything together, connect it all. See if you were able to see that at all. I found this actually at a store in Tennessee that sold uh, artifacts. And cool. Yeah. And ever since I started doing research, I found out, you know, it almost looks like the spear dancing on there. You know, I can't is confirm that, it. Is, is that Egyptian? Is that? So supposedly, according to the story, it was uh, like Viking Age, supposedly. I can't see exactly what it is. A man standing with the spear, is it? Yeah, there's a spear in one hand and a sword in the other is what it looks like. That does look like it could be from that motif, but it's hard for me to see it in the, on the yeah. webcam. But I mean, if you want, I can send you a picture afterwards, you know, just more of like yeah, a better picture. Because yeah. I've, I've always been curious if it's legitimate or not, but, you know, it was the only ring. They just had a pile of just junk rings that supposedly were from the Viking Age 
Uh, and it was the only one with any figure besides just like a floral design or a knotwork or something on it. It doesn't look like any kind of um, design ring design I've seen from Viking era, but that doesn't mean it's not authentic. There's that famous um, helmet. Uh, do you guys know about this helmet that uh, like until recently, they thought there was only one Viking a confirmed Viking age helmet because all the Viking helmets that people think of Viking helmets are actually Vendelera from Swedish graves. But there's one that was confirmed Viking, but now there's definitely two. And one of them, it was added to the list because it's been kicking about for so many years. And everyone always thought this is such a crap helmet. This is the most fake uh, and obviously not a real Viking helmet I've ever seen because it's so. Are you talking about made. that helmet with like, uh, how, do you have like a video that you kind of talked about it? I can't remember. No, I've never it. talked about it. I think oh, other yeah. people have. But anyway, then they did they did testing on it and they found out it was authentic and it's real. And it was like you universally called a fake by all archaeologists before that because it just it was so badly made. But the thing is, there were bad Smiths then in those right. days too. And there were some guys who couldn't afford a good helmet in those days too. So like just like today, some reenactors have good helmets and some don't. And it was the same in the old days, I guess. And so you can't really be sure if something's authentic so easily and i'm not an archaeologist so i wouldn't be able to tell you for sure if that rings right. authentic or not but um i just like showing it off when i can yeah it's cool <laughs> um so one question i, I did want to ask is uh you know something i mentioned in the email as well is uh one of the first videos i've watched as yours was uh the slavic paganism uh where you actually did show a, a slavic ceremony uh and then you also have the swedish uh vorbloat i believe it's called uh at Uppsala. yeah and those videos were always the ones that interested me because I I really am just beyond curious of what rituals would have been like in the past. And obviously, it's impossible for us to 100% recreate them. Uh, but I wanted to see what your experience was like actually being there for those physical ceremonies. You know, was there any sensations or was it just kind of a sense of, you know, calling to the past in a, a very humble way? Like, uh, you know, just kind of tell me how it was. Uh, I've been to many, many heathen ceremonies. Uh the, the two that you mentioned um, were not particularly moving for me because I was I had a camera in my hands. Right. So whenever I'm, if I'm filming, I'm not really participating 100%. Like, you know, uh, I'm sure Christian would say, like, if he was working at a, a church event and filming it, it wouldn't really be a particularly religious experience. It's, it's, you can imagine, like, if you're not, you're not really 100% with the, the community if you're, if you're holding a camera. So uh, in those times I was documenting, um, but there were, the Slavic one was really nice and, um, and uh, they were all really um, friendly Slavs and, and I enjoyed going to Poland and meeting them all and uh, seeing how they did things. Um, the, one of the more, in terms of travels, one of the most interesting ones, I mean, I, for, I had was when I went to Lithuania 2015 and i participated in the um uh, is it called rasos i think or um yeah it's there like joinanas is what the general lithuanian calls it which is like means saint john's day and it's done on on the solstice or you know midsummer day which isn't actually the solstice but close to the solstice um which is called saint john's day in the christian calendar uh, but they, the peg, the neo pagans call it Drasos. And at Canave, which is an old Iron Age or medieval pagan hill fort uh, with, of some pagan significance, they have this enormous festival. And it wasn't just, it's because Lithuania's folk festivals are already so like pagan that, like, um, and all the local people come 
and not all of them are pagan a lot of them are christian but it, they do all these pagan things because they've been preserved as a pagan as a pagan festival as there are all over europe like i have done like similar things in in britain where i go to these like May Day festivals or whatever that look really pagan, but the people doing it aren't pagan. But also at this Lithuanian thing, the neo-pagans also are integrated into it. So there's this aspect of like, it's an ancient pagan tradition that was only, that's been preserved because they only stopped being pagan, uh, you know, a few hundred years ago. Like paganism was still widely practiced in the 15, 1600s in, in among peasants in Lithuania. Uh, but uh, and now, and the revival happened in the 19th century. So it's like, there hasn't really ever properly gone away. Um, although there was a gap where it was, it was certainly limited to illiterate peasants. Um, but that was really huge, like so many people. And uh, they were all singing these songs, like, like hundreds of people singing the songs to the gods. And uh, I could only understand the names of the gods because I can't speak Lithuanian, it's so complicated. But there was a huge bonfires and processions of torches. And then they'd all wade into the river and leave these like um, rafts of fire, like little candles on them and like decorate them with, and all these women like running around barefoot in their Slavic costumes with flowers in their hair. And then the, the, the virgins like wash their faces in the morning dew on midsummer morning and stuff. And they stay up all night dancing and singing. And we were like dancing with them and do, doing all like waltzes and things. And when I say dancing, I don't mean just to like speakers. I mean, there's like a band, you know, of bands with like violins and uh, harps and things and all playing folk instruments. It was like really, really uh, uh, authentic and cool event. Um, but, and I really enjoyed it, but it was, the only problem was it wasn't my God. So it, it was a foreign thing. So I always did feel like an outsider to some extent. But uh, in terms of like my favorite blocks I've been to, are the ones that I've conducted, not saying because I'm the best at conducting blocks or anything, it's just because all the people there were people I knew personally and we were all on the same page and we discuss everything in detail about what we believe and how we're going to do it. And then and we're all very earnest about making sure we create the correct environment that is conducive to like what we consider to be res a respectful environment for invoking the gods. And that's really important to me because I, we've all, a lot of us in my hearth have been involved in many hearths and many groups. And we've seen like things occur that don't, that shatter the sacral, the sacral environment, the sacred feeling of, of, of being in a holy place in a holy time and people tittering and people not, understanding or people doing things that are a bit cringe and uh it's good to just have like to strip it down to something small and bring it down to like people you know and trust and and you can all discuss it and make sure we do we do it very methodically where we do afterwards like a, a lessons learned like what did we do wrong how can we make sure we did it right and i always assume that there's a possibility that we did it wrong and offended the the god we invoked and that we we try to look for signs that the sacrifice was accepted. And sometimes there are very clear signs. Um, I mean, one the most clear sign I ever had was when I was, I was actually by myself and I wasn't making an offering. I was just saying a prayer at a river. I was in a river and uh, uh, two and, and prayer to Odin and two ravens flew over me. Uh, and ravens aren't particularly common in this, this part of the world. And, but anyway, there are other signs that can be used, but um the, the 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 one the Vorblot one in Sweden was a, a really one of the biggest blots I've been to, but it was uh, a group of people I have nothing to do with. Um, I have I don't know any of the guys at that from that blot really, 
uh, uh, the, also f some funded is a, uh, the group that did it, I think, and I'm not a member or anything, I just came to see. And to me, that they did hold it around Easter. And to me, that's like, I we hold in England and a block to the goddess Esther. Uh, and I consider her to be, uh, we within my hearth, we consider her to be Freya and the same, one and the same. Um, but uh, the, these also some funded were like, we don't believe in Easter. Easter is an Anglo-Saxon goddess, not a Nordic one. And I think that that's sort of limited because I don't, because I don't believe that Anglo-Saxon paganism and Norse paganism were significantly different at all. Um, and the more I look into it, the more evidence that pops up, there seemed that they were very, very similar, actually, that the Germanic religion was pretty much the same religion all over. There were differences in the way it was practiced from house to house, of course, from village to village, but not like there was this like regional difference, like Anglo-Saxon paganism and Norse paganism necessarily, uh, that, that but we now think of. And um, uh, that is tied partly to like modern national identities rather than any authentic uh, evidence of like this clear distinction. Like not everything is passed down to us in, in the Anglo-Saxon sources, not everything is passed down to us in the Norse sources, but um, if, if there's a God that's written in one and not the other, then there, there should be an explanation for that besides just, uh, oh, the other one didn't have that God. I think uh, there can be other explanations, but um, yeah. I, I really attached what you said about, uh, you know, your, your hearth in particular, uh, you know, and feeling connected to, you know, a small group of individuals that understand what they want in a ritual and are willing to build upon it. Uh, it's something that we've noticed as a community ourselves, you know, our biggest gathering to date was 75 people recently for Yule. And, you know, typically, wow, that's really big. yeah, uh, it, it was definitely our biggest yet. And uh, we can do bigger, but usually we're just limited by uh, the size of the properties that we rent out. But usually the leadership and all of us, you know, Caleb and Ian are, are leaders in the community as well. We always say we don't like the bigger ones. Now, they're great to get everyone together for the feast and activities, but the actual spiritual experiences are usually far better at the smaller events just because you do have that. You have a, a commonality between everyone on how rituals should be done. You know, some of my favorite gatherings have always been where it's almost every single person I know because there's that that unity in the respect. You know, you don't have that one person who's way too drunk or that one person who's, you know, too busy thinking about their phone or whatever. Everyone's in the moment. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's exactly how I feel. The biggest one we've done was last summer. Last midsummer, we had... Um... We, we do a block to Thor at some point in the middle of summer, roughly in the middle of summer, but uh, that that one is always bigger. And we invite people from other hearths and trying to kind of like an all thing. Yeah. And then, and that one I think was 20 something. That's the biggest one I've ever done myself, but I've attended much larger ones. Like the, I spoke in 2016 at the Asgardian festival and they had at that festival, uh, many people i don't know how many but could have been 50 people in in a, in a block of communal block or something but there were people being silly and it just uh not everyone i'm not saying the block was silly but there were people there who were being silly and tittering and just not taking it seriously and i don't uh i don't appreciate i don't appreciate that at all i don't really want to i think that there's a there are i don't i do appreciate that some people due to no fault of their own like the way that we've been what the we're conditioned to to not we're not really raised in an in a culture that respects the sacred properly and so it's hard for some people even when they're sincerely trying to become heathens to actually uh put themselves in a place where they can uh, honestly and you know sincerely some feel like they're summoning a god uh to to, to worship them 
So, um, and, and I think that's, that's okay to admit that. And that's a problem that I've addressed with, with my, you know, my friends and my um, members of my half. And we, we consider that like one of the problems that needs to be overcome with people. And, uh, and, and, and I find personally, I find one of the ways is by talking about that beforehand and helping people to work through that, because it is a thing like, uh that 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 we just there's a sad fact of, of of western culture that we're not really we've become too alienated from from the sacred oh i mean not to not to you know sh show our americanness here but it is really hard here i mean now that i've been to, been able to be to europe you know there is more of an identity of sacredness to some degree where here you know that was cast aside you know the sacred really does not exist here and that has been one of the hardest struggles um is to take you know these people that don't know what that is and you know and and teach them you know hey this is a sacred space you know you know this is something they've never experienced before but it's also the greatest thing to see when they realize it yeah I think I think it's probably not much better here than than you might think it is. It is pretty bad here, um, and also atheism took off in England before it did in in America. It should be it should be remembered that while 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 there were a lot more like um, you know earnest Christian Christians across America, there were you know atheists spreading quite quite a lot in Victorian England even like um, so it's been like this for a while. But I think that people no matter what culture, no matter how, you know, they could be raised completely by atheists, completely divorced from anything sacred. When they see it, they know it. And there's something in the, you know, the, the, the soul or the, the components of the Germanic soul as, as I believe in them, it's like it, orient, it orients people naturally towards the divine. Like we, I believe are, you know, built for perceiving and worshiping the gods. So uh, I think there's, it doesn't take a, a lot of help, just a gentle push in the right direction for people to sort of understand how to be reverent and how to show the proper respect um, for, for the divine. Yeah, and I, I always say, you know, once they experience it, they understand it. I mean, it, it, it is the most beautiful thing to see. Uh, but I do want to transition. Uh, we're actually at the 55 minute mark. So Ian or Caleb, do you guys have any last minute questions before we close this out? I just had, excuse me, I just had one that um, kind of popped in my head uh, while you were talking. Um, as far as separating the academic side of things and the spiritual side of things, do you ever find it difficult to kind of like separate the two in a way as far as, you know, obviously what we know compared to like what you potentially personally believe in at all with your practice? Does that ever interfere? Yeah, I can see what that problem pop up and like, um when I'm reading, when, when, when I read, you know, I, if I'm as a belief, as you know, a, a, a faithful heathen, if I read everything, I can't read every source and every interpretation as a gospel, like as a, as a word of God or whatever, because, you know, the source, the, the primary sources are often filtered through, you know, Christian interpretation. And then the academics and historians, archaeologists who then interpret uh, evidence later down the line are not themselves necessarily heathens or, and, that that's irrelevant to that and more important is they're not always correct so they need to be read critically so i can't always read it in that way so i do have to put on a, a sort of the academic hat for, for for being an academic and then put on the heathen hat but 
uh, I, I have had someone, you know, people point out to me, like, I've watched a lot of your videos, you know, you talk about this archaeology or this history or this philosopher, and there is no coherent unifying ideology here. There's no actual religion here. Like, you, you haven't actually articulated a coherent religion by putting these things together. And, and I think that what they miss is that that was never what paganism was. It was never a, you know, even Christianity, as it was, as it's been passed down to us, the gospels are collections of different books, different things, different stories that they've tried to patchwork together into a, into a, you know, one uh, coherent religion and then solidify that with uh, church doctrine. Um, that never happened with heathenism and I don't think it should happen. And understanding the the way that heathen the, the whether we say someone says they practice anglo-saxon heathenism or norse heathenism those are two the idea that you you can solidify like this was heathenism as it existed in that area of the world at that point in history does that make it that was the true religion like it was in ninth century sweden they had the true religion but in the second century sweden they were well out they were completely wrong. That doesn't make sense. And that's not what people in the ninth century Sweden believed. They believed that their ancestors were right. But we can see also like that there were clear developments. So um, from my perspective is, I, I, I believe that these there was a fluidity to these beliefs and they changed and that there were different ideas coming and that God's names changed and that their mythic roles changed. And that these things can be understood by, you know, acad through academic disciplines. Um, but they, but the academic disciplines um, don't give you a, like a spiritual guidance to understand, to meeting and knowing the gods. They just help you to understand how people used to meet and know them in the past. Um, I think that some of the philosophers, like the, the pagan philosophers, whether Julian, Celsus uh, uh, and Sallust, people like that, talk about paganism in a way that is relevant for heathens or any kind of polytheists of, of today because they say that you know Celsus talks about what he calls the true philosophy or the true word and that isn't one doctrine he talks about how all different peoples around the world that as the limited parts of the world that they that he was aware of have arrived at through their own traditions a true perspective of the divine but they call the gods different names. They worship them in different ways, but it, he considered it one religion. And that is kind of the way I see it. Like, even though, you know, Homer and, and Snorri were describing different religions, you know, one's Bronze Age Greece, the other's medieval Scandinavia. They're describing different religions in those texts, but what those people believed was, to me, the same belief system. Uh, that, and that doesn't make any sense from a, to a historian. If you said it to a historian, they say it can't be because there's no connection. But that, I think, is what they themselves would have believed. And I think that's borne out by what all the Greek philosophers, the Neoplatonists say as well about, you know, whether they're talking about Egyptians or Celts, the Druids, they're saying that they understood thing, the same things. Uh, and, and, um, and in a way, comparative, they didn't have comparative mythology. They have their own comparative mythology of the time, Interpretatio Romana, for example, where they start, you know, they call, they say the Germans worship Mercury, and we understand that that to mean Wotan. But uh, what I consider like the Indo-European comparative mythology of um, scholars like Dumazil and Jan Puvel is like a, a modern and more sophisticated development of that ancient practice, which was just recognizing that every people has access to the divine and the accumulative wisdom of that people becomes their 
pagan tradition. And, and um, we today, are, when we're reviving that, we're, we shouldn't get too hung up on like the specifics of a regional, uh, you know, dogma that we perceive would have existed at that time and more like what is essential and what is, you know, true. And then how do we uh, honor the gods in a way that is consistent with how it was done in the past and also respectful of, of that uh, without, you know, unnecessarily reviving things that don't really need to be revived. I think that is a great note to close us out on, actually. Uh, so I want to give it to you one last time here, Tom. Uh, you know, is there anything you want people to know that you're working on right now, where they can find you and all that good stuff? This is your time. Uh, tell everyone where they can find your stuff. Thanks very much, Jacob. Well, yeah, my YouTube channel is called Survive the Jive. If you Google that, you'll find it, no problem. But I also upload videos to Odyssey and BitChute occasionally. But uh, it's the same videos, whichever platform you prefer. Uh, as for like, more general social media content and just what I'm up to and keeping everyone up to date. I mainly use the messenger app Telegram and I put everything on there and I'm very active on that. And uh, I post all my videos and also all my other things. This year I have planned my first event I'm putting on. Uh, this is the first time I've ever mentioned it, but uh, I will be uh, holding a conference uh, about the future of paganism and uh, that will be in London. So um, there will be limited tickets to that. So if you are going to be in London this summer or you want to be in London this summer, then you might keep an eye out for that uh, when tickets go on sale. Because uh, that, that Can you say a, the date? Like I'm actually, I'll be in uh, England in the middle of July. It's not 100% confirmed, but I think it's going to be June. It's, gonna, uh, in, in, it's more likely to be June. But It's, uh, only, I it's only $80 to fly there from Munich. <laughs> well, yeah, um, you'd be most welcome. Um, but the um, the... The, other, the next video I've got coming up, if, if people are interested, should be up in next week or so. And it's um, about the Viking hero Starkad, uh, who's, or Starkather, who is an Odinic hero, uh, but also a tragic kind of hero and something of an enemy hated by Thor, but beloved by Odin. And I am using comparative mythology to show how this is an archetype that's really found all over the Indo-European world. And that it's this uh, tragic, warrior poet who's sort of beloved by one god and hated by another and is sort of monstrous like uh you know starker himself is half half giant and had used was born with many arms until thor cut them all off but um yeah i think it's going to be a really valuable uh insight into the germanic religion and, and an archetype that most people aren't familiar with so uh, keep an eye out for that if, if you want to to see my next video all right. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us here. I'm glad we were able to put this together. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but for our audience out there, uh, as of this video coming out, we are like a week away from doing our big fundraiser to purchase land for the nonprofit. Uh, so make sure we're staying tuned to the website and the newsletter. Uh, we will be announcing that very soon. Uh, but once again, thank you so much, Tom, for being on here. And everyone, until the hall, Skull. 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 Skull.